Well, I like to uh, label my message this morning, I'm thankful. If I can talk from the thought of, I'm thankful. On January 10th, 2015, the Oakland, California native and former Seattle Seahawk running back, Marshawn Lynch, had a post-game interview after they defeated the Carolina Panthers 31 to 17. The post-game interview is where Marshawn was asked several questions about his performance on the football field. As he was repeatedly questioned, he gave a two-word response that I believe is the, is the impetus of how we should feel as we think about Psalm 136. He, he said to the interviewer multiple times, I'm thankful, over and over again. Now, I doubt Mr. Lynch really thought that he was intending to give a robust theological, biblical truth on national televisions for millions of people to watch. I'm not sure if he thought that through, but his words ring true. I'm thankful. After reading through this psalm, we can emphatically say with Marshawn Lynch, I'm thankful. This psalm is written by an anonymous author and is characterized in book five of the psalm's breakdown. Some themes, some motifs, some, some things that come out in Psalm 136 is things like creation. And this is something that's repeated in some of the different psalms that we've already been in this series. Themes like love, things like grace, mercy. And I love the African-American theologian J.D. Otis Roberts as he describes what mercy is. He says, mercy is the compassion shown toward an offender or an enemy. It is a disposition to forgive or forbear. Other themes that come from Psalm 136, God's power, God's miracles, and of course, thankfulness. This passage is more like a hymn that would be read or sung in community as the Israelites would read this in worship. The phrase that you all did phenomenal, a phenomenal job in saying 26 times, for his steadfast love endures forever. Some translation says his Faithful love continues forever. It was originally read by a, a, a priest or a worship leader of some sort, and they would say the first half, and then the congregation would say the second half as a call and response, very similar to what we did during our scripture reading. This chapter of scripture, Roosevelt, is designed to instruct us that we should give God thanks for his specific actions in our lives. This psalm is instructed to teach us, is designed to teach us that we should give God thanks for his particular actions within our lives. A lot of us, we tend to be very broad and tend to be very vague and tend to be very general, but I think this psalm is saying that we should actually investigate 
and think through particular specific actions from God that we can give him thanks for. Amen? So as we open up our text, there's three motivations for us to thank God. And the first motivation is for who he is. We see this in verses one through three, for who God is. Now, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll notice that this is something that's been talked about a lot, the character of God. We can't escape that. So there's a lot of repetition here. And when there's repetition, that means that God wants us to understand. God wants us to comprehend. God wants us to download this into our minds so that we can fully trust and believe who he is. We suffer from the condition of spiritual amnesia. We tend to forget a lot of times. So as we constantly think about the character of God, this is something that is consistent because when life gets hard, when things go crazy, when things go haywire in our lives, we can continue to remember the steadfast love of God. It indeed continues forever. Verse 1 talks about the goodness of God. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this this morning because, again, our sermons, we've touched on this quite a bit. But it is a good reminder for us to never forget about the goodness of God. Amen? To be clear, there's other attributes and other qualities about God, right? Love, his grace, his mercy, all of that. But we should be motivated to thank God for who he is. Secondly, we can be motivated to thank God for what he has done. And this big section from chapter, verses 4 all the way to 22 really talks about that. This section makes up the majority of the passage. And if you notice in this text, it talks about what God has done in the past. His specific and particular Actions. It starts in creation, but it also talks about how God fights the battles of his covenantal people. In verse 4, says, to him who alone does great wonders. We serve a God that is not someone who says they're going to do something and never do it. And some of us have grown up in households with fathers that have told us that they were going to come to our sports games, that they were going to pick us up from school, and they never did it. They were just empty words. They were just empty promises. And some of us project the non-actions of our biological fathers onto our Heavenly Father. And I'm here to tell you, they are not the same. Amen, somebody. They are not the same. I'm here to tell you that God is in a class all by himself. We have a God that keeps his promises. He is not passive. He does not neglect his children. He is not an absentee dad. In fact, he takes the initiative. He acts on behalf of his people. He is a moving God. He is a mighty God. He is a verbal God. Verb as in he speaks but verb as in actions. What actions have the Lord done in the text? Well, the psalmist gives several reasons. One, God is a creator. We know this, right? God created everything, created human beings in his image and likeness. 
all of that. Everything that he created in the world, human beings, the only thing that has the imprint of the image of God. We are the crown and glory of his creation. But it also talks about he, create, he created uh, uh, the great lights and stuff like that, right? So God is a creator, but it also says that God strikes down his enemies. In other words, God fights the battles for his people. He struck down the Egyptians and overthrew Pharaoh, verses 10 and, and 15. But it also says that he struck down the mighty kings, Sion, the king of the Amorites. The Amorites were a, a group of people in the Old Testament. And it also talks about how he struck down Og, the king of, of Bashan. Some theologians says in the eyes of the sacred writers, this dual defeat is so significant that it can be ranked with the Exodus story as, God, as a manifestation of God's saving intervention on his people. Some background for you about this particular um, king. Sion was the king of the Amorites. He was a ruler of a place called uh, Heshbon, which was the village town east of Jerusalem. He was the first king defeated by the Israelites in the Transjordan region. We can say that God ultimately defeated them because God empowered Moses in such a way that this would happen. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 21, verses 21 through 16, but essentially I'll give you the cliff notes. What happens, the king's land stood between Israel and the Jordan River. Moses requested that the king allow his people to pass through so that they can get to Canaan Remember, Moses is the leader and liberator of the people of Israel, and the king refused to allow them to pass through his territory. So then God, through Moses, defeated the king and his army, because God is a God that fights the battles for his people. This is not the only time that this is repeated in the Bible. It's also repeated in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 22. It says, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples allotted to them in every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of, of Bashan. What I want to say, Roosevelt, is that we serve a God that not only fights our battles for us, but he delivers us, and fights our enemies on our behalf. Our, our, our enemies may not be the Egyptians and the Amorites, and hopefully you don't have any real enemies today. Hopefully you don't have people that really want to kill you or anything like that. But it is good reminder and good to know that God fights the battles. He fights the enemies for his people. Now, again, we are in the 21st century, so our enemies are not the Egyptians or the Amorites. But I don't know, maybe your enemy is financial debt in your life. Maybe you have so much debt that is uh, causing you to have anxiety. Maybe it's causing you to even think about what are you going to do? How are you going to make ends meet? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? You know, Proverbs says, 22 verse 7, Borrower, borrower is a slave to the lender. And sometimes our debt that we have in our life may be holding us back from the things that we ultimately need to do. Maybe that is your enemy. Side note, I'm not saying all debt is bad and all that. Okay, we good? Just want to make sure. Okay, 
What I want to say, though, is for some of us, debt cripples us. And maybe that is our enemy. Maybe your enemy is the negative thoughts that you have in your life. We all have been told different stories and all have been told different narratives and told different things about us, our family, our people, and all of this and that. And maybe the negative thoughts is your enemy. Second Corinthians tells us that we should take every thought captive so that it can obey Christ. Maybe the way that you think is your enemy. Maybe it's the devil and the demons. Now, I know for a lot of us, we tend to not think of the spiritual as much, right? We, 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 we're we're uh, scientific people for some people, right? But if you are a follower of Jesus, there is a spiritual realm. That's why the Apostle Paul tells the people in Ephesians that they should be what? Ephesians 6, guarded with the full armor of God. Because there's principalities, there's a spiritual realm, and there is a very real devil. I don't know if you know that. And his demons. And I know there's a phrase that tends to be said that the devil made me do it. And maybe the devil didn't make you do it, but the devil does influence you to do things that you should not do. Maybe that is the enemy for you. Maybe the enemy is the sin you have in your life that you don't want to confess, that you don't want no one to know about, that you're ashamed of, that you have guilt about, and that is weighing you down so bad that you can't be all that God wants you to be. Maybe the sin that you have, maybe that is your enemy. I would submit to you that the biggest enemy, to give some hope, to give some uh, a confident expectation that we are good. Amen? I want to say the biggest enemy has already been defeated. The biggest death, the biggest enemy is death. Death is something that happens to a lot of different people. People die literally every day. And some people die literally every day not having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And I love what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And at the cross, death was destroyed. You see, there was a, a, a man by the name of Jesus, and he came from heaven to earth, and he dwelled among his people. His people rejected him. But he was an ordinary person. He was a carpenter, born into a, a, a poor family. But as he began to get older, he started to understand his calling, what he was called here to do. That's why when you see him in the temple, he says, I'm about my father's business. But the people of that day, long story short, didn't like him. Because he said, before Abraham was, I am. And that caused people to pick up stones to try to stone him and to try to kill him because they thought that he was blaspheming against God. But they didn't know that he was God in the flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. This Jesus suffered and died and rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. And anyone who believes and trusts in him 
they can conquer sin and death as well. And this is through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. So what I want to say is the biggest enemy has already been defeated. And if you believe in Jesus, then you will also defeat that enemy. Amen? The third motivation for what I want to say is what Yahweh is doing now. For what God is doing now, verses 23 through 26. Now, if you notice in verse 25, it shifts to a present tense verb versus a past tense. All of this passage was talking about how God was acting in history. And Brandon talked about this last week, about remembering. But in verse 25 is where it shifts, and now we see God is doing something in the present tense. So we can say that God is not only the God of the past, but he is also the God of now. It says he gives food to all flesh. There are things in our lives that God is doing now that we can thank him for and show him gratitude for. Question, Roosevelt, what is God doing in your life now? Remember, we tend to get very broad. We tend to get very general. We tend to get very vague and lofty and transcendent. I'm asking specifically, what is God doing for you now? It's good to also remember the past, right? So sometimes you may have to look at the past to see how God is faithful and how his steadfast love endures forever. But there are things that God is doing now that sometimes we tend to overlook, we tend to take for granted. And I just want to ask you, what is God doing now? Because this psalm teaches us that we should give God thanks for his specific actions in our lives. So as we apply this text for us, I want us to get back to the basics. I want us to just get back to the basics. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, when we say thank God, I think, one, we can thank God for literally waking us up this morning. If you are here this morning in nice air condition where it's really hot outside, and you're here with your family, you're here with your friends. You can thank God for literally waking you up this morning and clothing you in your right mind because God is gracious. Simple thing is you woke up this morning. There are many people in the world that did not wake up. And we can thank God for simply waking us up this morning. Another thing, getting back to the basics. Thank God for putting food on your plate. Again, this is something that we take for granted. When it's time to eat a meal, we say a quick prayer real quick, and then we hurry up and eat. But literally, that is something that we can thank God for. There are many people in the world that do not have that luxury. Literally. I remember when uh, I was in Tanzania, and um, I was struck by how long people prayed over their food. And I'm going to be honest with you, I was, I was like, can y'all hurry up so we can eat? But after listening to the different stories from my brother, Tanzanian and brother, brothers and sisters, I realized why they spent so much time praying over their food. 
They literally thank God for the food that they ate. And that is just a simple way for us that we can do the same thing. I know we got refrigerators on top of refrigerators that have abundance of food, but other people in the world do not. And to be clear, you don't got to go all the way to Tanzania to know that. There are people here domestically that fit that same description. So we should thank God for the food. Again, I'm giving you specific things that we can thank God for. Getting back to the basics. Another thing that I think that we can thank God for is a glass of cold water. Not just because it's hot outside, although that that is good as well, but again, when we think globally, there are many different people around the world that don't have clean water. Again, I remember uh, traveling in Tanzania and and also in, in Kenya as well. I remember turning on the faucet and literally brown water dropping from the faucet. The most disgusting thing that I've ever seen One of the disgusting things I've ever seen in my life. Water so bad as you can't drink it. Meanwhile, here in America, there's water bottles and water bottles and water bottles that have been sipped on and not even fully drunk, drunken. Or food, water that's just literally wasted. We should thank God that we have a bottle of water that's clean that we can actually drink. In fact, we have different types of water, alkaline water and purified water and drinking water and spring. We got different kinds of water. Being there, I remember because seeing that scene, I can't unsee it. But I remember when we got the bottle of water that was actually drink. I literally got the bottle of water and I thank God that I had that water. Getting back to the basics. You can thank God. I don't know if you thought about this lately. But it's having a washer and dryer. Amen? Again, traveling and being uh, around the world, there are many people that don't have washer and dryers. In fact, some people actually have to take the clothes that they have. And remember that? dirty brown water I told you that was coming out of the faucet. Some people have to use that water to take their clothes, to wash them in that water, and then put on a line for them to dry in the stench of the dirty brown water is all over the clothes. Meanwhile, we got touch screens of washer and dryers and all sorts of different things. Again, this is not a guilt trip type of thing. I'm just giving perspective on the things and the specific actions we can thank God for. We can thank God for simply having a nice washer and dryer. Amen? Getting back to the basics. We can thank God for so many different things. And just want to encourage you, as you think about your life, And what God, yes, has done in the past, but the things that he's doing now. I know some of your stories. I know how God is moving. I know how God is doing some great things. I don't want us to lose sight of that when life gets hard. 
Because life is going to get hard. And for some of us, it is hard. But we can still look at the goodness of God in the midst of that. And we can show gratitude and we can be thankful for what God has done and what God is doing now. We can and should thank God for his specific actions in our lives. The fact that God has kept us from all sorts of things. That in and of itself gives us the motivation that we can thank God. And we can say, like Marshawn Lynch, I'm thankful. And the people of God said, amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you this morning that, yes, we are here. And even the things that I said, there's so many more things that can be said. That is not an exhaustive list. We'll be here for centuries thanking you for all the different things that you have done in our lives. We can't thank you enough. So I pray for anyone who is here, Lord, that is maybe having some challenges. Because in the midst of difficulty and challenges and heartache and pain, sometimes it is difficult to thank you. But I pray that we don't stay there and get bogged down there, we can still thank you for who you are, for what you have done, and what you're doing now. And ultimately, we can thank you for our salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Everyone that believes <laughs> is adopted into the family of God. They are adopted into this multicultural, diverse family from different tribes, from different nations, from different languages. And we are indeed family. We're not like a family. The Bible says we are a family. And because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we can be thankful that you have saved us and that you have kept us. So we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.